0: gang it's john thank you for listening to another edition of deep dive this time we are welcoming back our most popular guest ever mike lindup of level 42 did you guys know that did you know mike is by far our most downloaded episode ever came out a couple of years ago so mike wanted to come back and talk about the level 42's debut self-titled album from 1981 It's the one that started it all. It's the one that features Star Child, Love Games. Of course, they would go on to have great big hits in the 80s, especially in the States anyway, later in the 80s. But this is where it all began. So we talk about the formation of the band with the Goulds and Mark King, how they found their sound and how they created these songs. I've said this before. We are so lucky to get this kind of information from people like Mike. And I've also said this before, I don't know how else to describe this. Mike's singing voice is one of my favorite sounds ever created. That falsetto is the most welcoming, beautiful noise I can think of. Not even just the falsetto. I mean, anytime he opens his mouth. I love this man's voice and I love this band's music. And I'm so grateful that we get to hear all about it. I hope you guys enjoy it. Well, we're going to talk about the first album. I left it up to you to decide, and I'm really curious what made you decide to go with that.
1: Well, it kind of came down to, I mean, I could talk about any of the albums, but sure. I was trying to think of one that was really close to my heart, in—in in right now anyway, and yeah. it was sort of between World Machine and, and the first album, and, you know, I think, you know, both of them are particularly deserving uh Uh, but i think that the 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 first album just because it was the first album to come out and uh it obviously you know it it was the first that first way that we kind of made our mark as sure as recording artists you know our first sort of proper material for doing the the gigs when they eventually happen yeah Um, whenever
0: i feel like whenever a, a successful artist of some kind, especially a musician talks about those early days. Those are the days they look back on with the most fondness, even though, because it's what you had, it's the hard stuff you had to get through to get to the other side, to become successful and play Wembley and all those kinds of things. Yeah. So you just, those days they were, I don't know, they didn't last forever. They were short, thank goodness, but they were just so fraught with excitement and drama and Challenge and all these things, you know that success made easier smoothed out for the rest
1: of your life, you know well, um, yeah, although I would say it's sort of It's funny with our career because we had such an unusual beginning, you know compared to you know, what's generally agreed to be the kind of standard way that bands start you know, the sort of getting together of of mates that's certainly, you know, quite common but the first thing that happened is we got a record deal and then we recorded a, an album which we didn't finish and then nothing happened for three months and then we started to get one or two gigs but you know that we got picked up by a major and offered a five-year effective five-year recording contract for five albums at the beginning of mm. 81 mm. and they didn't particularly like the stuff that we'd done <laughs> with Andy Soika, so they mm. they put us together as a producer and so You know, we had a a week or two to really get the material together that we were going to record for this first album. And then after the album came out, we suddenly got this break going to Germany and opening for the police, which then led to us playing in Holland on the way back and suddenly becoming huge in Holland. Mm. So, you know, unlike we sort of didn't have to gig around in pubs for ages. We never made a demo tape, for example. We weren't trying to get that to somebody Vaguely in the music business because Phil and Boone's brother was already in the music business and he knew someone who had a a label, which was Andy Soyker in North London. Wow. So it was all very unusual. Um That is unusual. Huh. I'm just imagining
0: you guys, I mean, they talk about I wasn't there obviously, but they talk about this sort of burgeoning jazz funk wave happening in the UK at the time. And I'm just imagining there's you and 10 other bands like Incognito or whoever else. I was curious, you tell me who some of them are, just doing your thing in different various clubs and it becomes the new thing. So the labels are just like, we got to grab a few of these people while this jazz funk thing is really hot and they grabbed you. But that's not what happened.
1: Well, yeah, no, that did happen actually. But what happened is we didn't know anything about the jazz funk movement, which was a kind Mm -hmm. of underground thing. But Andy Soika. Who had the Elite Records label? Who signed us? You know, he offered us a deal based on us making one of our instrumental ideas that he'd heard us play at a rehearsal studio into a song. He said, "You, you make a song out of this particular idea that I like, and I'll get you a deal." And but he had his ear to the ground. He knew about the jazz funk thing, and he could see that if he picked the right material from us, we'd sort of have a ready-made audience. I mean small but but kind of ready-made and also there were certain DJs that were championing this up and coming jazz funk thing, first from America and then when it became homegrown. And so it was it wasn't after we until after we'd signed and we started doing sort of PAs and little gigs at the jazz funk clubs mm. in the southeast of England that we started to hear about oh there are these other bands that are kind of in this sort of wave. Like okay. uh Lynx and Light of the World and Incognito and then, you know, Central Line. Yeah, there were a few and, and, and Shack attack. And what happened oh, right. is, is I think Polydor, as you said, were kind of because back in those days, you know, there was still A uh-huh. and R scouts and we had been scouted. Somebody came down to hear us play our very first gig on the Isle of Wight. And and he came, I think, because John Gould was kind of connected in the business and said, oh, my brothers have got this band, they've made this album and uh, they're doing a gig. And so we were kind of scouted in that way. And I think Polydor thought, yes, this jazz thing could be the next big thing. Mm. Maybe let's sign a couple of bands. So they, they signed us and they signed Shack Attack around about the same time. And okay. uh, I would think sort of just taking a punt to see, well, Something might happen, so uh, yeah, and uh luckily for us, um there was still this concept of artist development where you know you sign an artist for more than one album and you put them together hopefully with the right producer, and hopefully you know they'll manage to produce something that will you know be successful enough to kind of start a career and and the record company some money, basically. Right, right. that which is kind of what happened. So we, we had effectively an apprenticeship um, of, you know, trying and failing in the studio. But um, what happened with the level 42 album, and I think why it's so important, apart from being our first album, was the fact that it sold something like, I believe, 20,000 copies, oh. um, which was, you know, quite respectable for an unknown band. And I think it showed to Polydor that there was, you know, potentially some mileage in this group that they would taken a chance on and like I say it also gave us material to go and play live and what eventually happened is our live show from kind of humble and rough beginnings became a real vehicle and sold the band so much so that you know people would often come back and say I didn't really like the album but I really like the band live now I'm <laughs> gonna go and listen to it again <laughs>
0: That's great. Now, what uh, what went into having Mike Vernon be the producer of this album? That was not a name I'll admit that I knew right off the top of my head. And I had to do some digging, and he's worked with a lot of blues people: John Mayall, Ten Years After, Focus, Dr. Feelgood, Fleetwood Mac.
2: Yeah.
0: Why? Why did the now I wouldn't. You guys aren't bluesy at all. You're the this other thing. Why did the label think a blues producer would be the
1: right guy for you? I don't know because we didn't have any any kind of hand in the choice. It was it uh, was chosen by Polydor. I imagine that you know there was some there was some kind of soulfulness, some soul influence in our music that you could probably hear on certain songs like you know the early tapes like Love Meeting Love and Wings of Love. But also, I think the Focus connection was important because you know as a instrumental group initially that sort of learned to become a songwriter Mm -hmm. you know we were very much inspired and influenced by bands like Mahavishnu Orchestra and Return Mm -hmm. to Forever as well as James Brown but I mean we learned we knew Focus and we liked Focus and I think Mike I don't know what happened where but I would have thought at some stage Mike must have heard something of us maybe heard like a something that kind of reminded him maybe of Focus Because obviously we had Mark King, who, you know, was this kind of star on, on the bass and, right. and a very distinctive style. You know, the rhythm section between him and Phil w- was great from the very beginning. You know, the harmonies that I came up with and, and, and also the vocals. Because Mike is a great singer and um, he did a few backing vocals on, mm. on, on our early, on early songs. And he was telling us he also did some backing vocals on some of the focus stuff. So uh, I think, you know, for whatever reason, he obviously liked us. As it turned out, you know, it, it was, it was the, the kind of the right choice because we, you know, for all our youth and arrogance at, at the time, because, you know, when you're starting out and you think you're great, I mean, I think that's mm-hmm. something that every young group has to have. They have to have a certain amount of, yeah, we're great, and uh, the world will find out. At mm-hmm. the same time, there's a great insecurity of, well, if we put our music out, will anyone actually like it or not? Right, um, right. <laughs> so the two kind of go hand in hand.
2: Yeah. But
1: yeah, but, uh, yeah I, I would think that Mike probably heard that and, you know, he had the maturity to to sort of put up with our our kind of youth and impetuousness. But also, you know, we did bring some some musical experience to the table that wasn't really his bag, but he kind of got his head around it and uh, mm. helped to steer it.
0: Okay. One thing that you that I find really interesting, you've touched on this a little bit, is the musicianship of the four of you. You, Mark, Boone, and Phil Gould. My understanding is that, like originally, each one of you, I believe, played different instruments than you ended up playing in the band. Like uh, Mark, yeah. star- you and Mark both, I think, start out as as drummers. Phil and Mark are working with M. Robin Scott, who I've had on here, by the way, is a really nice guy, but no one where you all end up is not where you started. And that just speaks to me as the music uh, of the musicianship of each of you to adapt to whatever instrument you're just naturally so musically gifted that it's like, oh, okay, I'll I won't I'll stop with the drums and I'll go play the keyboards and marks like I can do anything. You want me to play the bass? I'll play the bass. And then he becomes a world famous bass player. You know, it's like, who does that? But you guys, all four of you did.
1: Well, you know, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Robin because Robin was a great help in the the early days. In fact, he, Mm -hmm. uh, I think he paid for the rehearsal studio uh, in North London that we spent two days practicing and trying out ideas and knowing that Andy was going to come on the third day with his tape recorder, you know, uh, record producer, our first record producer that we'd ever sort of bumped into in that sense. So Robin really was supportive of, of... um, uh, because Phil had done gone to Switzerland and recorded on the first M album. He wasn't on pop music, but he was mm-hmm. on the M album. And another connection that happened there is that you know, Gary Barnacle on Saxophone and more importantly, Wally Badaru on keyboards yeah. were a part of that project. So that when we came to recording our first single, Love Meeting Love, which is the first thing we recorded, which for, mm-hmm. you know, for for the early tapes album, as it were. It was Phil's idea to bring Wally in to do some additional synth playing. And mm. of course, I initially bristled because, you know, right. it's like we're a four piece. You know, who's uh-huh. this guy and, and, and another keyboard player? I don't like the idea of that. Right. Um, but, you know, <laughs> Phil said, yeah, but he's he he's a sounds man. He comes up with these great sounds. And And sure enough, you know, from the very get go, Wally was able to produce things that I could never have dreamed of doing, because I was more of a piano player. I started ah. on, on, on piano. Okay. So I I was a keyboard player originally, but by the time I met Phil and Mark, uh, you know, at the Guildhall, I was really into drums because I was a first study percussionist
2: mm. uh,
1: at the college. And that was kind of like, you know, I'd realized when I was leaving music school and going to college that there was no way I would get into a music college auditioning as a pianist because there were far too many you know much better concert pianists around right but as a as a percussionist i stood a much better chance um because there were less of us basically and so it turned out and so uh, um, my dad had bought me a drum kit in the summer holiday between leaving music school and starting at, at guildhall mm. and uh, i was really into drums and i was you know i formed helped form part of a sort of dodgy covers band at college <laughs> um before i met Phil and Mark, you know, called Jawbone and uh, I was the drummer in that and uh, yeah so uh. that and that was a connection because when I eventually met Mark, I met Phil first of all playing drums in the percussion room and I was blown away and we kind of chatted and he said yeah I got this mate who's, who's another great drummer even better than me and he's in America at the moment with my brother but when he when they come back we must get together so where I met Mark for the first time with Phil in a cafe in Oxford Street and I just bought some Billy Cobham drumsticks and we were just sat around talking about, well, who's the best drummer then and talking about Tony Williams and Lenny White, and Billy Cobham and that sort of thing.
0: That's great. <laughs> I love that color. That is great. Now, why did Wally remain sort of as a honorary member of the band instead of an official one? Because he's he's, like you mentioned, he's very crucial to your sound and yeah. to making you guys stand out you know he's an he's a fantastic musician in his own right and maybe he wasn't the wally batteroo back then but he was still lending his talents to you why did he not want to just be
1: a member of level 42 i'm not sure but i think the basic thing was that he was quite happy coming in you know on the recording in the studio after we might have already come up with some ideas i mean sometimes he did join us you know to sort of write as it were in the rehearsal studio before the album later on but Mm. i think he was his his environment was the studio and he's really comfortable with that and he could take his time and he could program you know because sometimes he you know he'd spend a long time working on a sound that was his style and he also brought in compositions i mean star child for example that was a demo take that was an instrumental track that Mm. he brought and uh, we loved it and we turned it into a song along with him in, mm-hmm. in the studio in the end but uh yeah that, that because he, he didn't want to go he didn't want to play live you know we, uh, quite a few times you know on occasions we invited him um, mm. there was even I think a keyboard set up at Hammersmith Odeon or, or in oh, no. sort of about 84 for him to wow. hopefully fly in but you know he kind of got cold feet at the last minute or whatever. So uh-huh. it, it, it sort of just became an arrangement where he was a a kind of fifth member of the band that was only in, in the studio and, and not on stage with us. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to talk to Wally to, to really know yeah. what sort of shaped that. And uh, but, um, okay. you know, I mean, he was also, of course, he was signed to Island Records and then Palm Pictures. You know, he was mm-hmm. a protégé of Chris Blackwell. And he was doing a lot of work with being part of the Compass Point All-Star Rhythm section at the time, you know, working with Sly and Robbie and doing, you know, Grace Jones and Robert Palmer and Joe Cocker and all of that. So, Mm. you know, he had a few other things going. So maybe also he didn't want to necessarily commit to one project.
0: Okay. What was, now, was Dominic Miller around at this time too? I thought he was, but I don't know. Yes, he was.
1: Absolutely. Is he somewhere on this album though? I don't know if he is. No, he he, he did appear on some later albums. But what happened was uh, when I got to Guildhall, the first kind of musician uh, that, uh, well, not the first musician I met because there were a lot of musicians there. But, I mean, I met Dominic before I met the other guys in the band. I mean, Dominic, I was playing drums in the percussion room at Guildhall. And Mm -hmm. Dominic walked in with uh, his electric Travis Bean guitar and plugged it into an amp and said, listen to this, and he played a riff, and he asked me to sort of play along a sort of funky beat. And Mm -hmm. uh, we just kind of hit it off, and uh, I thought he was fantastic. And then he sort of, uh, he played a couple of gigs with this dodgy cover band, Jawbone. And so when eventually uh, Phil and I and Mark were talking about, we should maybe, you know, try something, our first rehearsal was me and Dominic and Phil and Mark in the room and we were just jamming and then we did another rehearsal and uh, Phil or Mark invited Boone to come along with his guitar and I think either after that second rehearsal or the third rehearsal Dominic didn't show up and I kind of like to think although I never asked him actually after all these years that that there was one too many guitarists in the room, and he sort of no. thought, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, I mean, f- I mean, shortly after, uh, I booked our first gig in the Student Union Bar at the Guildhall, which was a complete disaster, but that's another story. <laughs> um, and uh, by that time, you know, we'd become the four-piece, you know, of Mark, Phil, Boone, and, and me, and Dominic was kind of out of the picture. But we remained friends. All this time and you know I played on some of his solo albums he's played mm-hmm. on mine and uh, he came and played on uh, the Staring at the Sun album and then later he came and also guested on the Guaranteed album Yeah. and uh, he kind of came and hung out in the studio when we were making the Forever Now album so you know it's he, kind of been he's He's been a, a long time good mate of mine, and uh yeah. it, it never it never worked out for him to join level forty two although he could have done however, of course he fell on his feet in the sense because you know from doing sessions and meeting Hugh Pageant from doing the phil Phil Collins mm. but seriously album sessions mm. He, mm. you know he, i mean then Hugh Pageant went on to was doing Sting at the time, and so then he auditioned for Sting in '89, and yeah. has been with him ever since. Yeah. So you know, he he turned out okay. He, he turned okay. out <laughs> really got yeah he got himself yeah. a great a great great gig. You know everything you know worked out for the best as it were. Sure.
0: He I should say also and around the time you guys were uh, at your peak too, he was a member of a band called King Swamp. Oh yeah, I I love King Swamp, and we had Walter Ray, their lead singer, on here a while back. So uh, only two Uh, albums from those guys, but really, really strong stuff. And he was their guitarist too.
1: Yeah, I went to see him live playing somewhere with King Swamp, and uh, you know, because I followed his career, you know, in Uh in World Party as well, and yes, uh, he did some stuff with Julia Fordham, and uh, he played on some Pretenders tracks, and. I mean, I wasn't at all of those, but I kind of knew that he was, you know, getting a great reputation. And then when he started making solo albums, I'd be guesting on on certain tracks of those. And I'm pretty much on almost every solo album that he's written. And uh, he's on on pretty much most of mine, too. So that's great.
0: That's great. Okay, a couple more uh, questions about the album in general, and then we'll get into the song by song. I am curious. I think you touched on this earlier. It sounded like you guys originally began as more of like an instrumental group, you yes. know, to kind of j- to jam and come up with some some grooves. No one, you nor Mark, my, is my understanding, intended to be singers or, as you put it, even songwriters. But you obviously made that transition so well. I read it. I read the best quote about the two of you that it's a uh, salty and sweet mixture between your two voices. And I thought that's exactly what it is. That's the perfect description. You know, I think your voice is like the greatest hidden, the greatest secret weapon, like in pop history. That's your voice. It is the greatest accent to any song that's ever been written. Having Mike Lindup sing on it makes it the best. That's my feeling.
1: Thank you.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. But was there some reluctance from either of you to become a singer you know, to start writing these songs, to be the person up front. That's probably not how you started.
1: Yes, I mean, you know, being a lead singer is is is, is no easy task. And uh, I mean what happened at the beginning, the very beginning with Love Meeting Love is Mark and you know, we were given the task of turning an instrumental sequence into a song and Mark and Boone were living together sleeping on the floor of a flat of the guy who owned a music shop that they were both working for, oh. and um you know they recorded a demo tape, and Mark sung the vocal and then, when Andy got it, he said, "Okay, I'll find a singer who can really sing it, and he sent us a demo tape back with this other guy singing it, and again, we bristled and thought, "No, no, it has to be us singing it it's 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 all wrong for some other guy to be singing mm. it mm-hmm. and so Mark sung on Love Meeting Love, and then the next single that came off that early tapes was my song, Wings of Love, which mm-hmm. I sung lead on, and mm-hmm. double-tracked, of course, because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> neither of us had a great voice, and especially when we started singing live, it was like we were completely embarrassed and was sort of would rush through the songs, not looking at the audience, and then quick, get onto another instrumental and push Mark's bass up the front, yeah, they, they like that, okay, phew. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, you know, from just doing gigs and gigs and gigs And obviously having time in the studio to do, you know, retakes I mean, we had a basic musicality, you know We could more or less sing in tune And, you know, we had we had good rhythm So mm-hmm. our voices weren't bad, but they just were they, they were kind of not honed It was very kind of uh, early days But by the time we got to recording the Level 42 album It was just, I think that's one of the things that Mike Vernon was was good at. He was good at bringing out the best in us vocally. And of course, we were in a situation where we were in, you know, some great studios with great microphones and, Mm -hmm. you know, a a good sound engineer that knew, you know, had a lot of experience. And so we were kind of put at ease from that point of view. And now I've lost the thread of actually what you asked in your question, because I... What was your question originally? Well, were you? Was there some reluctance?
0: And you touched on that. The the I, I can, I can just picture it. The two of you singing live and feeling embarrassed about it because you're not used to being up front like that and rushing through a song. I mean, that's kind of what I wanted to know, or what those growing pains are like when you're becoming yeah. front men, You know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I mean, it was still obviously in the early days. I mean I had probably less studio experience than Mark and Phil and Wally because they'd had the experience of doing well two MM um M albums by then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was amazing to sort of do something, come into the control room, hear it played back, and uh sort of you know, be able to sit there and, and go and do another take and then compare yeah. the takes and and just get a sense of, you know things you thought that maybe Mm -hmm. weren't so good when you were recording it and then you'd listen to it and then you kind of get a bigger picture and then sort of dropping in and repairing and all that studio technique, which, you know, we learned on the job. But as I said, we we were lucky to have an apprenticeship of, of, of knowing that we had to do another, you know, four albums after that, you know? Um, So yeah, it was, it it was good. And we, we, we learned on the job and gradually, Gradually became more confident, and certainly when we had, you know, Love Games came off the Level 42 album, and that got mm-hmm. us our first Top of the Pops appearance, and it was our right. first kind of real hit, you know, Top 40 hit. Of course, all those things kind of give you confidence that you sure. you've got something going. Yeah,
0: I could see that. Now, lastly, uh, explain the cover. Who came up with the idea for the princess on the cover?
1: Now I'm I'm not too clear about this, but the artist was the girlfriend of somebody connected with, uh, with us or with John or with the record company. I can't remember uh, how she was sourced, but there was an idea, and, and I think Phil was quite visionary in this respect that because. It took ages for us to actually agree on the name Level 42 because we didn't Mm. want a name that pinned us down or became dated or Mm. was Mm -hmm. too faddish. It was the same with the album cover. We kind Mm. of didn't want... I think we were quite clear that we didn't want to have, you know, our faces on the album cover, and that wasn't going to do it. We just wanted something that was a bit more mystical Mm -hmm. and a bit more evocative. Yeah, so, I mean, actually, probably somebody else in the band will be able to tell you that story better because I don't remember it exactly. But uh
0: Okay. Well uh, that and then the silhouette of that
1: princess becomes almost your logo. You absolutely. Know, for, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well I mean again that was that that just sort of organically happened because uh, you know, we weren't looking for a logo, but it just seemed as though Um it sort of caught quite a lot of people's attention. You know, it was that you know, who's that lady on the album? You know, there was this sort of mystery, you know, who is she? And so we you know, we used it and it did become a a logo, and uh, you know, it's it still is a logo. So uh, we were just kind of lucky, I suppose, in that respect. Worked out. Okay.
0: All right, let me give some of the specs here. It came out in August of 1981. It debuted at number 56 in the UK charts. It got up to number 20. There were three singles from this album. We'll touch on which ones they are as we get to them. One other question. Do you remember what you did the night before your album came out? Did, uh, did the band, you know, have a sleepover? Did you go out to dinner somewhere and just say, you guys, tomorrow it's happening. It's real. Tomorrow, a record hits the shops. Or was were you out on tour somewhere and just too blurred out to even think about it? What was the release date again? It was August of 1981. I don't yeah. know the exact day.
1: Right. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure what we were doing when the album was released. I mean, I'm sure we were paying a lot of attention, but I mean, we—I suppose we'd already been kind of busy with the, you know, promoting the single, you know, that came out before the album, and uh, thinking about the second single and so on. So I don't remember there being. A particularly uh, big fanfare about the album release uh, okay. on, on, on the day, but of course, we once it was out, we were you know very interested in what the charts were going to do with it and how it might go. Um, yeah.
0: Did you all go to the local HMV the next day and get pictures of yourselves
1: holding no, up no, your no. first record and stuff? No, 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 nothing like that. I mean, okay. uh, I do remember. I mean, the, the memory I have is. At the time that the album was uh, we finished the recording, around the time we were recording the album, I moved out of home and I moved into a, a, an L-shaped bedsit with Mark King um, in Southwest London. And uh, John Gould, our first manager, Phil's brother, lived around the corner sort of up the road, as it were. And I remember uh, you know being dropped off. In the small wee hours of the morning of the last day of mixing Mm -hmm. the album Mm -hmm. and Mark and I getting out and standing on the doorstep and sort of shaking each other's hand and thinking that (laughs) we you know we'd really done something that's the sort of special feeling I have about celebrating the album Uh, but that was obviously when it when the recording was done that wasn't when it was released and uh, by august i think that was when we were just about to go and do these shows with the police in germany so uh we were probably knowing it was coming out but kind of busy with other stuff okay okay all right track one
0: is turn it on
2: reaching to an
0: The second single off the album, there's a kind of a funny, (laughs) funny, goofy video from back in the day that accompanies the song. You've got like a giant mustache and more of an afro back then. The thing that I like about this song, well, there's a lot of things, but one of them is that kind of plinking percussion that's going on in the background. It almost sounds like someone's playing a bottle, the bottles.
2: Yeah.
1: Like, where, where did that come from? Well, that's very interesting because I don't remember us doing a video for... For turning on Or for love games, yeah, uh, yeah. no, I mean uh, weave your spell from the pursuit of accidents. Definitely, that's uh, the one. Weave your spell. I'm sorry, yeah. yes, I got it mixed yeah. up. Yes, no, I that's... don't we didn't do any promo videos for any of the songs of the first album. Maybe because uh, I don't know, but I mean, obviously, in those days, videos cost a lot of money. I mean, mm-hmm. record companies were spending a lot of money on, on making videos, you know, because they involve film production companies and locations and storyboards and concepts sure. and all of that so i think probably it wasn't in the budget to have a video you know because uh, yeah yeah i mean we would have well, been and they, were we... le-
0: they were
1: less crucial back then anyway you know? they, they were they were yeah. but but um coming to turn it on i mean that was again that was phil's thing he loved the idea of of playing kind of milk bottles uh, as a mm, percussion that's it there. yes and uh, so that's really what they were there was a load of of milk bottles or wine bottles or mixed up with different amounts of water in them because he okay. tuned them to get particular pitches. Yeah, so that wow. was, was kind of his so- thing. And that was, you know, became part of the, obviously the the fabric of Ferneton. Of, of yes.
0: Now, is someone playing those the whole time? Or are you kind of, doing a snippet and then running it as a loop. Oh, no, no, no,
1: no, no, no. No, this is way, way before cut and paste or, <laughs> you know, uh, that was, a, that was a, you know, that was a take all the way through. I mean, wow. and uh, I mean, maybe with a drop in or something, because Phil was yeah. very fastidious about timing. It had to be absolutely perfect. And I think he'd had sort of training from experience doing the, the first M album because... You, on, on the drum, on the track that he's drumming on, he said that Robin wanted him to do the hi-hat with one pass, and the snare is another pass, the bass drum is another pass, and the fills is another pass. Uh, and it had to be exactly in because it was with the click and so on. And so Phil was kind of quite well versed in listening back to something and saying, oh, that's drifting a bit. Okay, we need to drop in there. But but basically, yes, I mean, that was, that was a, a, a take all the way through, there's wow. no looping. Wow, wow.
0: Well, it announces what you guys are all about so well as an opening track. Mark's bass is super rubbery in it, and your falsetto is on fire. I'm gonna save most of my thoughts on that for a later song. Mark's voice is so obviously, it's not a professional voice, but it's a very distinctive voice. It mm. cuts through so well, you know, its you remember it, it, it works. And uh, so I feel like all the hallmarks of what level four, what makes Level 42 special show up in the opening track to establish, this is what we're about. And um, if you like it, you're going to get more of it, you know? That's kind of my feeling. This, this song reached only number 47 on the charts. Was that uh, at the time, were you thinking you're going to have big hits, or do you see yourself as sort of a little niche? And if you have pop success, that's great. It'll come, but were you disappointed in this? How did you feel?
1: It's funny you say that because I I, I didn't, you know, I don't remember a lot of chart information.
2: Mm. I
1: mean, I remember some and I don't remember other things. So I'd forgotten that that was where it charted, which obviously if it's a single, it's not great because, you know, you have to get top 40 to get on top of the pops, which means that more people will see it, which means it might then be bought and get chart higher and so on. So maybe there was some disappointment, but I, I, I can't really remember that. I mean, what oh. I do remember is that quite a few of the songs we, we'd we had, like I said, a couple of weeks before going into the studio or the studios, because we main, mainly mm-hmm. used two studios with a couple of extra sessions elsewhere. But uh, we'd been uh, down in the Isle of Wight rehearsing in, in Phil's mum's house garage, you know, on... Kind of borrowed instruments, I borrowed a Rhodes and so on. And we'd come up with quite a few of of the the song ideas for the Level 42 album in those sort of sessions. But as far as I remember, Turn It On was something that was kind of more or less made up in the studio. And Wally Mm. was a big part of that because that keyboard part, the bum, the bum, the bum, -bum, -bum, Mm. that's his riff. And I think Mm. Wally and, and Mark you know, they had this kind of coming from different directions, but they seemed to really kind of click uh, on something that Wally would throw something down and and Mark would pick it up or vice versa. You know, a lot of ideas Mm -hmm. came from bass riffs that were then built on. So, but that was really a kind of studio created track. And I I think Mark had the idea of having the sort of fanfare at the front of it, the sort of Mm -hmm. So once that was kind of done, when it came to choosing you know which orders the songs came in which we were a big part of um, right uh you know what the album running order is because you know we all grew up on great albums that seem to have you know the most amazing natural running order like inner visions or you know rumors yeah or uh i don't know i mean i can think of examples like you know bridge over troubled water or whatever but i mean we all grew up like like loads of people did, listen to albums as albums and you put on side one and you, you know, or you have the cassette in the car Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the songs have to follow in that order such that, you know, for example, when compilations come out and they put all the tracks in the wrong order from different albums, it's just like, no, this is wrong.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Speaking of compilations, I feel like in some ways Turn It On is sort of the lost level 42 single because it's not on the level best greatest hits album it uh i've seen you guys twice in concert i don't remember each one perfectly well but i don't recall you playing this song is it just sort of has it just sort of been kind of lost to history or does it show up once no in a while? it does
1: it does show up i mean i have played it on uh on two or three tours uh, maybe two tours recently, but we used to play it a lot in the set in the early days, um, partly because we didn 't have that much material uh-huh. it 's been part of a fabric but um you know bec- probably because it wasn 't a big hit it 's probably mm. why it 's not on the compilations we've we certainly bring it in uh, it 's certainly sort of in in the sort of in the bag of tracks that we can reach to okay. but a, but of course the thing is that now when we play live, we have sixteen albums of of True. original material and songs True. to choose from. Yeah. Uh, plus we have to play, obviously we have to play the big hits. Right. So that means half of the set can be culled from you know 16 different sources. So. True. Uh, Good point. Okay. Yeah.
0: Just curious. Okay, track two is 43. This is the first of three instrumentals on the album. why it's called 43 and i'm curious if now i could be way off when i listen to this it reminds me ever so slightly of you can't blame lewis from the uh accidents album and i was curious if the uh, if this song morphed into something else later or if it was always why is it called 43 what's the story of this one
1: I'm not quite sure. Again, I can't remember. i mean, okay. it just hit me why it was called 43. <laughs> I think maybe it was originally called 42. Ah, I seem okay. to vaguely remember it was something like it was called 42, mm. and then we thought it's too close to the name, so we called it 43. I mean, titles were often the hardest thing to sort out. Anyway, we wrote the song uh-huh. first, thought of the title afterwards as it were. <laughs> But um, yes, no, I don't think there's any relationship with You Can't Blame Lewis, except it was the same people that wrote both those, okay. those songs. But again, it was obviously, it was a, you know, a series of bass riffs yeah. um, originally. And then, I mean, we used to spend hours in rehearsal studios in those early days, and we'd often develop our music just by jamming on ideas, mm-hmm. recording them onto a ghetto blaster, Coming in the next day, having a listen to the, what we did the day before and the a Blaster and then picking out the bones and, you know, having another go and someone saying, oh, what about this idea I've got? Maybe that will fit with it and trying it out and, and so on. But I mean, Mark w- was was quite, um, you know, he'd come up with not only a bass riff, but he sort of come up with a top line idea and then you know me and wally would take that and uh, and you know maybe, maybe phil would come up with a with other top line ideas so the, the i think the idea of the percussion breakdown was probably phil's at the time
0: yeah i love when it gets really kind of moody in the middle and uh, and then you're you do a, some keyboard stuff I do there a, that's I do just a on moog, fire
1: i do a moog solo there which is yeah. uh, i have to say it's one of my proudest moments
0: yes it should be it's so good that's my favorite part of that song. Do you make that yeah. up on the spot? Do you spend nights thinking about your solos, writing them down? How does a solo work?
1: How does it come to be? Well, I—I I, I mean, I no, I don't. I don't spend nights. I think um, I, I started to play. I think I just was. You know, it was just. Uh, I mean, what's great about that section is that you is the context of it. So you've had the, the, the sort of exposition, you've had the main theme mm-hmm. and the sort, of, the, the sort of B idea and the main theme again, and then you get to this middle section and it changes key and it changes mood. So it's, it, it's lovely be, uh, because um, it obviously requires something else to happen there. And I think I just started playing the solo and probably hit on that idea and I kind of remember, you know, the others in the studio, because I'd be in the control room with the moog. I wouldn't be in the playing area. Mm-hmm. And I, I play some. I think I play those ideas, and it's kind of like, yeah, that's really great. It's kind of mm-hmm. almost like it's got a a hook to it. And so then, either myself or, you know, in combination with others, was encouraged to try and develop that into into something so it's kind of it starts off as something that's sort of memorable and and morphs into something that's more more kind of solo if you yeah. like uh, and it, yeah it was i mean it was it was great i mean this is like my first time being mm. able to play you know a, a moog synthesizer i mean I, I played one on love meeting love in in the middle section you know obviously bits in the early tape but i mean it was still an exciting thing to sort of think I'm playing this instrument which has yeah. so many possibilities and all my heroes keyboard heroes you know most of yeah. them played the Moog like you know Chick Corea Yan Hammer yeah. so yeah it was a, okay. really, it's a
0: magic moment that's great good uh shout out to Phil Gould too his drums on here these tribal drums in the background are just fantastic this is a really strong tune okay track 3 is why are you leaving ballad this is your one co-write on the album which kind of surprised me i would have figured given the jam nature of the band that everybody would have gotten kind of a co-write on everything but this is your one thing what what's what made this stand out as something you
1: kind of put your own stamp on i think i came up with the the initial idea the four chord sequence oh um and uh i think probably in rehearsals again i was you know it was probably after a tea break or something and i started playing it and and then mark started jamming along with it and phil started playing drums and it's like okay we've got a sequence we need uh this could be a song okay mm-hmm. mark came up with the, the 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 melody phil wrote the lyrics pretty much you know and i came up with the sort of the the middle section sort of chord sequence going around the houses and coming back into you know the, the sax solo, which is uh, this yeah. great guy called Dave Chambers that we we sort Ooh. of bumped into, and in fact Andy Soika had brought him in to play on the instrumental version of Love Meeting Love, mm. and uh, we'd never sort of, you know, never never really heard a a, a real sax player before. Uh-huh. Uh, well, I I hadn't. I mean, yes, Phil and worked with Gary Barnacle and so on, but for some reason we. We just felt Dave would be the right person for the for the mood on on this. It was that, and and I mean, what's lovely is that Wally again added his sort of magic, little subtle magic touches on the sort of echoing sort of keyboards and uh, the whole end section where it sort of fades into mm. the sort of wash. That's that's his his magic on on the the Prophet Five, and uh, that's great. Something I was noticing in
0: listening to this song is and. <clears throat> So many of Level 42, well, not so many, but you guys have some very direct love songs. There's Why Are You Leaving? There's Leaving Me Now. There's It's Over. These are, they're not, they don't sugarcoat the situation. They coat, they're they very direct in what they're trying to say. And I wondered uh, if that was even a conscious thing. It probably isn't. Maybe I'm making too much out of it. But it just feels like some of your love songs or your balance are just so to the point, even in the names of the songs, is like, why are you leaving? That's, you know, that's something you say, that's not always the name of a song, but you, for you guys, you go just right to the
1: point. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, that's mainly thanks to the, you know, Phil and Boone being the main mm-hmm. lyricists. I mean, I actually think, I have a theory that, that we didn't have, you know, we, we would have had a bigger hit with Leaving Me Now, for example, if it was called something like I Love You So Much because you know it's like when we get to the ballads it's like oh god it's it's about break up and you know yeah. she did that and she's terrible and poor me and i'm thinking yeah well if you want to reach out to the female audience you're not going <laughs> right. the right way about it guys um you know um what's the other one lying still yeah 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 like, Another one, yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, you guys just cut right to the point. That must be a Gould hallmark. I mean, yeah, I mean they—they they were both of them would write from personal experience, so it was—it it, was—it was authentic. So I suppose that's kind of what what you know gives it the power that it's not—it's not just like uh, okay, let's make up something, you know, sugar coated, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was going
0: to save this to the end, but maybe it's better not to end on such a sour note. We should probably talk about Boone for a minute. He died, I believe, of suicide a couple of years ago. My understanding when I looked into this is that he had kind of been suffering from manic depression or bipolar for many years. Do you, I wanted to just offer it up to you. If there's anything you wanted to say, if you'd rather skip over it or not get into it, we don't have to, but.
1: No, um, well, I mean, I think that it's easy to put, you know, uh, Labels on people and I mean right. to say that he's bipolar and manic depressive to me it kind of it's Way too cut and dry that you know a yes. uh, boom was much more of a complex character than 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 that and I, I mean, I don't know actually uh, About his diagnosis. I know that that's in the public domain. Mm. I mean he did take his own life Which was yeah. tragic. I mean it was last year last March. Oh um, wow. okay, and you know, it's it's really sad, and I mean, I knew that he had his, you know, he had his uh, his dark moments, and uh, you know, sometimes he'd sort of comfort himself with alcohol pe- periodically. And he was like a, a really amazing and and kind of, I mean, prolific writer. You know, you 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 give him any subject, and he could just reel off lines, and then mm-hmm. you'd have to almost like, okay do some serious editing here to find out you know where where the song actually is but and he could turn a phrase like anything you know he could he could take something as I say that was kind of authentic from the heart and find a really poetic way to do it and it seemed to come naturally from him and you know we obviously spent you know weeks and years you know on tour buses in hotels in studios together and and I love Boone and he, you know, he was, he was quiet and sometimes he didn't really reveal what was going on and, mm-hmm. you know, but, uh, you know, we all really miss him. And, uh, I know yeah. it was, it was, it was tough in the last few years, but none of us expected what happened. I mean, it, yeah. it wasn't really flagged up at all. And really? so, uh-huh. um, I'm I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that, you know, he has the most amazing legacy in terms of, yeah. His musical contributions. Good. Well I wanted to we it it was it's a little bit of an elephant in the room.
0: I wanted to make sure that it got touched on and that's Yes, thank you. No, that's good, John. All right. Track four, almost there. It's nice to come out of this this ballad with a really peppy, upbeat song. And this one, I think, showcases that falsetto of yours in its at its finest. And um, I know I keep touching on this, and I hope it doesn't make you uncomfortable, but I just think you're, everything you do is amazing. But that voice cuts through in a way that nothing else quite does. And I was curious, you know, you have... You sing in your regular register too, which we're gonna to touch on a little bit later on this album even. But were you aware from the beginning of your falsetto being such a
1: powerful tool? Or does it, do you not no. even think
0: about it that no, way? Other no, people
1: not at that? all. You yeah. know, it was kind of like the falsetto thing came about partly because, you know, when we wrote quite often, you know, coming up with top lines, Mark would have a top line and Phil would often have a top line, and when he wrote his top lines, they'd, he'd always hear them in a kind of falsetto range and he'd sort of, you know, sing them I often, you know, he'd sing them to me. So say, could you sing this line, you know, because I hear this really working with what Mark's doing. And because I could sing falsetto, I would sing it and I didn't really think much of it. But uh, I mean, of course, then there was the thing where we'd sometimes sing together and it was a nice blend that when we sang like an octave apart and, you know, a bit like the sort of obviously we'd heard, you know, groups and been influenced by groups like Wind and Fire and so on. And and that whole, I mean, not that whole, because I don't want to be generic at all, but, um, you know, other American groups where, uh, uh, you know, there was a tradition of, of falsetto singing as well as kind of natural voice singing and I just thought well it's something that I do so I do it I mean I never really thought it was anything special it was just kind of what we did and what worked and you know later on I kind of started to appreciate a bit more that it had a sound and you know do more with it and kind of you know just you know think about more where where to use it and 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 you know we learned things like you know, delivery, like, you you know, there isn't just one way of singing it, the notes and the rhythm mm. and the words. There's actually more to it than that, but that sort of came later on. Okay. I
0: hope it doesn't make you uncomfortable to keep just pouring this praise on you, but I, it's my favorite. It's, I can't think of a recorded sound that I, maybe a baby laughing or something like that, but I just, it's one of my favorite, most pleasurable sounds on planet earth is hearing your, voice used mightily in these songs of yours it's uh there's nothing else like it it is one of the best sounds or it conjures up the best feeling i can think of and um now there's also a really excellent kind of space age solo in this song and that's you as well do you remember anything about that
1: yes because we had sort of had a swap thing, so um, Mm. it goes into a guitar solo first Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, in, in one key and then it it transposed to another key and I sort of answer it. And this, uh, was a, yeah. this was a sort of homage to the Mahavishnu thing where, you know, Jerry Goodman would play a violin solo and then throw it to John and John would play a guitar solo and throw it to Yan and Jan would do a moog solo. And then, then they'd sort of go back and then the times that each would play get shorter and shorter and they end up sort of almost playing over the top of each other or playing something in unison. So that was the kind of, the concept of that, so it was like guitar solo, keyboard solo, and then the end was actually uh, another guitar solo. But then the, someone had the idea—I don't think it was me—to actually double the guitar with the mm. keyboard. So then I had to learn Boone solo on the keyboard, which wasn't easy, and then play it. So that's how we got to that sort of that build in the in the solo okay. almost there.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's such a great song. Um, now we go into Heathrow, which is the second um, instrumental. There's also a really nice sax solo in this one. Who was that? That's Gary Barnacle.
1: he was triggering his sax and and triggering it electronically. So you've got a mixture of the acoustic sax and this sort of Mutron, auto-wire-esque device that that, that the sax was, that he he used to carry it around with him. Uh, You know, it was like a sort of big rack unit thing. Mm. And you got a sound out of it that that was kind of sax plus and a bit electronic sounding. But Gary, I mean, Gary is one of these players where he will do something different every time. And also the way that he hears stuff is is he, he plays, he doesn't play very many kind of, again, of the sort of obvious sax type licks. He's He always goes off somewhere and, uh, and he's quite influenced by Lenny Pickett and the fact that Lenny Pickett can, you know, do this super high stuff and Gary loves doing that as well. So, but he's, he's also got this big sort of brassy, can do that kind of hairy chest thing as well Mm -hmm. Um, um, but but Heathrow was Wally's tune, I mean Wally came in he Mm -hmm. had that as his composition and he offered it to us when we were um, coming up with the songs and the reason it's called Heathrow is because I don't think Wally had a title for it and it certainly didn't have any bass guitar on it on on his demo but uh, uh, again it was felt natural for Mark to sort of because it was in the sort of shuffle time to do a Got kind it. of lopsy loo type kind of line to it, right. and uh, but it's called Heathrow because when Wally was doing his overdubs, you know, if he made a mistake, we joke and we point at the door and say Heathrow because you know he'd have flown in from Paris to come and do the session. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> like you do that again, and you're back on the plane. Out of exactly. Here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I love it. Oh, good. One thing I was curious about is in, and especially a lot of these instrumentals. It feels like. I hope this isn't a disrespectful comment to anybody else in the band, but it feels like they more more often than not they are showcases for either Mark's bass or something you're doing on the keyboard. In most cases, it's the two of you that are out front and. The drums, there are some moments, but they are, you know, they don't always have a drum solo. They don't always have a guitar solo. But there is almost always something, you know, very bass-driven happening and always something happening with you or Wally on the keyboard. And I wondered if the Goulds ever commented on that, or did they not want to step out front? Was that not part of the plan?
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know... I think it would be tedious having a drum solo in every instrumental. (laughs) I mean, that's something that maybe you could do live and we would do live is maybe, you know, rearrange the song. But I mean, I think Phil discovered that quite early on that what worked with Mark um, was for him to lay it down and for Mark to do all the syncopating. And what worked really was was that, 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 you know, often if you solo Phil's drum parts, uh, of over some of our most sophisticated music, you'll find he's doing something very simple, but just with amazing kind of pocket and feel. And it's almost like he's, he's kind of subtly feeling and, and implying all the syncopation that the drums could be doing, but not actually playing it and letting the space around it play it or let, letting Mark play it. So I don't think there was ever a problem with Phil. I mean, in terms of guitar, yes, we were very much keyboard orientated band and the guitar didn't often get much of a look in. Um, And so I think there was probably a bit of frustration at that time. Um, Boone was really he was more of a rocker, you know, in terms of influences and his style and he kind of learned how to play. I mean, he had amazing time, always had amazing time and, and he could play funk, but it kind of wasn't his natural bag. And, uh, and often when we were looking for a solo, there'd be this whole conversation about trying to find a sound that's never been used before, which would often come from the keyboards. I mean, in Heathrow's case, yeah, that's Wally on, on, on the synth, mm-hmm. you know, doing the lead because it's his okay. tune, it's, it's his groove. Uh, I'm kind of backing him on the roads, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a real Wally Mark thing that, that's Got driving it. that tune.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's. Uh, I just wondered how the, you know, how the roles were sort of being assigned, and if anyone had uh, ever bristled at it. Okay, track six, love games. This is the hit. This uh, reached number 38, so you did crack the top 40. Yes. You, uh, you showed up on uh, Top of the Pops. I watched the clip. Tell us about what it's like the first time you're on Top of the Pops.
1: Well, uh, it's 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 weird uh, because <laughs> in a TV studio, I mean, the way that the, the cameras make a studio look like this massive, huge place yeah. with, right. you know, hundreds of people, mm-hmm. the reality is um, that most of the time, the, the cameras, uh, unless they're doing close-ups, are, are, are on wide-angle settings. Mm-hmm. So it makes a bit like estate agents' pictures of properties when you look at them and then you go and actually visit the, the apartment and <laughs> see. <What>? That's, <laughs> that's, that's the phenomenon. So it's yeah. a really sp- quite small studio, s- square-shaped, with like three stages. You know, and Uh one band's playing, they're setting up the other band on the other stage and so on. The audience is probably about maximum 50 people. Okay. And what they do is they bunch them all in front of the actual stage that the artist is going to be appearing on. So it makes it look like there's a massive audience, in fact there's not. The director uh, is up in the control room, hidden from view and talking to the floor manager through headsets, who's directing us, and also talking to the cameramen, who also have headsets.
2: Mm.
1: And uh, in order for that conversation to happen, the music cannot be too loud. Well, I mean, it was a shock as to how quiet the music was, plus the fact it was coming from a couple of small speakers that weren't actually on stage with us. You know, because in in those days, and mainly on TV, you're doing full playback, so you're miming to your record. But you need to sell a record, so you need to actually sing and play and make it look like you're singing and playing. And it comes across generally quite convincing. And in fact, even the audience in the studio, most of them are convinced that you're actually playing and singing, it, even though the microphones don't have any cables Mm -hmm. and the drum kit has cardboard cutouts on the toms so they don't make too much Mm -hmm. noise (laughs) and the symbols are actually like two symbols or two plastic symbols that look like real symbols but they're not Mm -hmm. and they just go talk again Mm -hmm. that's this is all to keep the volume down so that the director can direct the cameras and all of that so uh, you know love games comes on and the first thing we say is like can you turn it up please so we can (laughs) actually feel the music and it's like no no that's no we need it that volume And it's not coming from next to you. It's coming from over there somewhere. So then you have to try and convince yourself that when it's playing, that millions of people at home will hopefully be hearing it and it sound convincing at home. So it's this kind of weird thing. But also, you know, that this is the program that we've all grown up and watched our heroes on, you know, week after week after week. And suddenly we're there and we're on the show and we've, we've, we put on our spangly clothes and we've been to makeup (laughs) and they put all that sort of powder and, and stuff to sort of dull our faces, well, <laughs> which looks really weird. And they explain, yes, but because when the TV lights are on you, it makes your skin shine and makes uh-huh. you look pasty. So you have to have this makeup on. And then, That's you know, then the camera's coming around and it's like, do I look at the camera? Is this camera uh-huh. on? Because they have a red light on it. I oh, know that camera's on. Should I look or should I just play to the audience? Yeah. You know, um, what happens next? Oh, of course, this is the single edit of Love Games, not the album track. So <laughs> I can't quite remember how it goes. So all of this is happening. And uh-huh. then and so you do a camera rehearsal. You go back to the green room. You do another camera rehearsal. You maybe bump into some of the other groups as you're coming in and out of the studio and sort of that sort of, you know, young rivalry thing, as mm-hmm. as I say. And then you have lunch, and then you go, and this is the actual take. And you do, you do a take. You wait, the director says, OK, can we do one more, and we'll do some different close-ups. So you mm-hmm. do the song again, and they change the camera angles. And then they do the rest of the groups. And then you go, and you go back to the green room. And then you have to wait for what's called clearance. Ah. And what that is, is they, up in the, the studio control room, they review all of the songs, make sure that they're all they've got all the parts they need and, and all the, the edits work fine. And there's no technical glitches like the sound wasn't working or something like that. And then finally, you know, I mean, you've, you've got there at about nine or 10 in the morning and you get clearance at about seven or eight o'clock at night. Oh boy. And then you go home and then the show goes out the next day. And then of course what happens is the day after transmission, you go out and your sort of shoulders are back and you're walking around thinking, right, I'm going to be recognized now because I've been on top of the Pops. And then you discover, uh. no, <laughs> no, nobody <laughs> knows you. Nobody stops in the street and say, hey, weren't you that guy that it was... No, <laughs> not, not for our level anyway.
0: Oh, That's so funny. Um, did uh, I'm curious how much thought Mark put into what t-shirt he was going to wear on the show. He's got uh, kind of this yellow, or maybe it's white, but it's been faded with the, the film anyway. These blue uh, sleeves and a kind of a yellow V-neck. It looks like a something he might might have played football in
1: earlier it's that a, it's day. A, it's an American football shirt. Yeah we, yeah, we did have a discussion about what to wear and it was, uh, I wore one as well. And, and in fact, uh-huh. uh, I think it might've been John Gould's idea. He kind of, okay. you know, I mean, we had no idea about image and, and looking like a group. And I think John had this idea that, uh, you know kind of a slick American look might be good and so I think he went out and procured these baseball these these American football shirts yeah. and uh, yeah. and uh, uh, you know myself and Mark certainly wore them and okay okay
0: yeah I was curious what kind of thought went into that this uh, this was the first single off the album did you ever think when you recorded this song that you would have to play it every night for the next
1: 40 years well, actually we, we we don't play it every night, luckily. Um oh. we we sort of we played it a lot in the early days and then uh we'd often play it in the encore. We we probably we'd play it for about fifty or sixty percent of our shows, but um it wasn't always in the set, you know, quite often we it wasn't in the set at all, but then we might go somewhere where the sort of jazz funk roots Crowd would be attending, you know, like in the the sort of home counties of Essex and Kent and so on where Mm -hmm. we first got popular or If we were playing in Holland, we might think, oh, we'll we'll stick Love Games in because This song became a huge hit in Holland. It was our first massive Mm -hmm. hit Mm -hmm. And and really we became almost an overnight success Largely down to Love Games. So we got Uh a lot to thank it for more recently, we have been reintroducing it when we play a longer set, but sometimes mm-hmm. in the festival shows, which we often yeah. do, we don't have time to, you know, we're playing like an hour or 50 minutes or something. Right. So it's it's not, I mean, we're not sick of it, if that's what you're asking. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's,
0: you know, and did you, you know, just, do you ever think that's good you're not sick of it? But yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, when, when these, uh, when the seeds of these ideas that become the song that was created 40 years ago, you don't think you're going to be thinking about or playing or talking about or uh, reacting to those ideas forty years later because the song never goes away; it becomes a hit. Yeah, uh, I am curious when you two things. Number one is scatting something that you felt comfortable doing because you sure you certainly do it on the album version of this song.
1: No, and it's, second, not me.
0: it's
1: not oh, me. Oh, that's it's Wally. not you. No, no it's oh, Wally. Really? Yeah, that was Wally. It was. Uh, it was Wally, kind of. Compose that scat solo, basically. And wow. I. But what, what happened is, because he wasn't on stage, I did it live. And so it's kind of become mine now. Oh. Um, but on the album, that's Wally. I had no idea. Okay, mm. that is such an interesting, you know, there's not
0: a lot of scatting on this album. And so I thought, wow, what an interesting choice. I wonder how Mike feels about that. Okay, good. And then secondly, th- I mean, it, this song has such a, just a dominant, um keyboard hook. That's what, that's the magic of this song
1: is that did who yeah. came up with that? Is that you or is that no, Wally? No, neither. That's Mark. Mark came up with it, you know, and he played it. He played it on the bass guitar in the bass register and said, you know, this might be a good thing, you know, for, a, I, I hear this melody happening over, yeah. over, over the sequence. And so of course he handed it to me and I played it in the keyboard register and, uh, Uh, I can't remember if I probably played it on a synth. And then when we got into the studio, we had uh, hired a Prophet 5 for Wally, Mm. and also a Prophet 10, which is Mm. a very rare beast. Wow. And um, I have to acknowledge, uh, it was Dave Smith's birthday uh, about a week ago. And I was one of the co-contributors to a a sort of video birthday greeting. But I mean, Dave Smith was, uh, he was the... You know, one of the, the, the he kind of started the whole sequential circuits company back okay. in the mid to late '70s, and the Prophet was you know one of the first polyphonic synths, and very much a part of our sound. Yeah, um, and still remains so. Wow. So, but but Wally spent a long time again cre- taking that that simple melody that Mark had had made and turning it into this anthemic
2: yes. sounding
1: thing with all of these sort of textures and and now when we play it live because we've got three brass on stage it's synth and brass together and oh, it's, very it's, nice. it's it's really strong that's great yeah that's one of the great
0: you know keyboard hooks uh ever and it, it just it's what makes the song so special okay uh now track seven dune tune i'll be honest this one's my least favorite on the album. mark or anybody else it's just uh but it's not as interesting a soul uh, an instrumental i should say to me but i am curious what your thoughts
1: are on doom tune actually i would say it's probably it's probably one of my favorites really uh,
0: that's often awesome. that <laughs> happens to me so much
1: uh yeah. but um yeah it was again it's, a, it's it's an instrumental tune it's um it's a it's a bass vehicle and uh uh, it's very simple. It, it's 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 a melody, and then there's a middle section which was basically a kind of a jam. Mm. And what happened is, uh, in the jam, we, we, it was again created in the studio. I was like, improvising on the road, and Wally's throwing in some kind of uh, some kind of weird sounds, and then there's a sort of little pause with this sort of spacey thing. I mean, it's amazing that. It kind of sounds like it was really planned as a composition, but quite often what happened is, is we just lay it down and we'd leave some space and think something will fill it later and then something fills it. And the thing that fills it becomes like, wow, never even thought of that idea. Right. How lucky were we that we left the space for that? And, and the, the, the vocal that comes at the end, along with the tune, was a kind of quite... Uh, Ayato Moriera inspired because he again he's one of the influences that he used to sing along to his compositions in a particular way using vowel sounds right. rather than words or, or kind of scat and so that's that's a sort of Ayatollh-esque thing and oh, then wow. it, needed, um, it needed an outro and Mark threw this other riff in and I came in, I think I came up with the, the sort of the, the keyboard part that goes on top of that and Wally does a sort of faux violin solo on the uh, on the Prophet at the end. So yeah, it's um, and I mean, but the thing is that Dune Tune gets featured a lot in our concerts because quite often, you know, Mark will have a spot where he does a bass solo. Most most shows he'll do a uh-huh. little, uh, either a longer one or a shorter one, particularly in the full set. And quite often he'll he'll start it with introducing Dune Tune, or he'll refer to it because it's it's uh with again with a lot of the fans of the early stuff they really like that that tune and sometimes you'll just throw in a reference so it's, mm. it's sort of become part of our dna okay okay well i'll uh listen again with fresh ears listen <laughs> you don't have to like anything i mean that's the beauty about music it's totally subjective true you know what good music is is what you think is good and, yeah you know and and it's going to be you know jack sprat and his wife and that whole scenario <laughs> good
0: point i i should clarify it's not that i don't like the tune it's that of all the songs on the album this one is the my least favorite but i still like it fine when compared to yeah. other songs but it's it Listen, would be if you don't like it just be honest <laughs> i'm clarifying it's okay <laughs> i'm just clarifying okay I did wonder if having three instrumentals on this album was intentional. Like we want to, I, I wrote this down that the hits, you're enticing people to buy your album with the hits like Love Game. and But then you're sort of showing them what you're really about once they've bought the album with the instrumentals. Like we know you like the hits, but this is actually where we came from, these long instrumentals. Or is it like, you know, we just couldn't think of
1: uh, lyrics for these songs quick enough, and so we no. put them
0: out as they were.
1: No, no, no. They were it, they were always intended to be instrumentals, and I mean, okay. we, like I say, we did start off as an instrumental group, right? And most of the songs on the early tapes are instrumentals, and so that was just part of part of our DNA. I mean, we okay. write songs and we write instrumentals, and you know, if it were left to us, we'd probably ha- level forty two album would probably have been mostly instrumentals if it hadn't uh-huh. been for Andy Soika saying. You need to write a song, and us discovering that if you write a song, suddenly mm-hmm. you're accessing your music to a whole yeah. wider range of people. And so we gradually became songwriters. But I mean, we've always loved instrumental stuff. So yeah, they were intentionally intentional okay. as instrumentals. They were never oh, we couldn't we couldn't make them into songs. Okay, I wondered. Uh, yeah, I wondered what the philosophy was.
0: Okay, the last to- last song is Star Child. I think this might be my favorite song on the album maybe because it features you so primarily on vocals This was the third single it reached number 57. So it didn't crack the top 40 either. I love so much about this, but there's i um, <laughs> I'm curious where the whole motif of a star child even comes from the line in there a star just a star child born in space were you trying to be kind of spacey? Were you? Was that some real deep meaning there, or was it just? You said this song started out as an instrumental, and you kind of came up
1: with lyrics later. What's what's the birth of all of this? It, it's an instrumental that Wally created. That's the origin of it. And so okay. the, the the sort of the bass riff, the bump bu- 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 yeah, and the yeah. the kind of rhythmic feature, the rhythmic. Thing on the profit. Yes. That's all, Wally. A lot of the, the the backing sounds are all from his demo tape, which he played us. I think when we were doing the early tapes, he played it to us and said, "This is something I've done." Just kind of while we were, you know, showing each other material, and Phil I think really liked it and thought that it could be a soul, and so we then worked on it and you know came up with the top line. Uh, you know, Phil came up with the. Top line, the da 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 Yeah, you know, and then and then we we wrote the middle section, the we have time and the uh, yeah. and the solo and uh, the the solo section again was was a musical idea of Phil's, and Phil had the idea again looking for something new. The solo was a combination of grand piano and glockenspiel. And, yes. Uh, Phil kind of wrote that, he took me into the studio. We were in Rack Studios at that time, I think. And, and and it was a composed kind of solo, as it were. It wasn't improvised and kind of worked it out and then executed it. But just going back to the space thing, another great influence on us um, was science fiction. You know, we, mm-hmm. we we all individually had read science fiction. I mean, obviously the, the 42 comes from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Right. Um, so that's you know where the origin of the name came from. A couple of us, if not more, had read you know Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov and okay. you know okay. all those great science fiction you know Ray Bradbury. So the Star Child idea came from the end of the film 2001, um, where you see mm. the Earth on one side of the screen and you see this baby in a womb on the other side of the screen, and that's the Star Child. Um, um, it's not made explicit, I don't believe, in, in the film. And I don't even know if it's in the book, but that is the the image that that's Phil image. called on. Phil wrote the words to Star Child, and that was okay. where he uh, he, he kind of got his inspiration from. And, you know, we are all born of the stars, and that whole right. concept and thread. So that's really why that became that song. So it does have this sort of spacey... Yeah. Spacey thing, and I think also probably was Phil was inspired by Wally's demo because the sounds that Wally had on it were quite sort of spacey and, and swirly, and so um, mm. often the atmosphere of the music would then inspire what was going to happen on top of it. Okay, and and that song has has been an evergreen for us because even though it may not have, you know, charted particularly high or been a hit, it's been something that we've been playing on and off for mm. most shows. And in fact, uh, nowadays, it's, it's always in the set, whichever okay. set we play, and wow. it's the song that we play when we're doing this a line check or a sound check, we always start off with Star Child, Really? Uh, because we, we've got so used to it, and we know that if, if, the, if, if everything's working, the balance is right, and we can hear each other's vocals, and we can hear our instruments in the right balance, while we're playing that song, and sometimes you know, we don't have much time, you know, on a sound check, sometimes it's like mm-hmm. you're late and you've only got five minutes, right? You know, so Star Child is kind of like the rabbit's foot now. It's, it's, it's mm. um, and, and when we're rehearsing a whole set in the rehearsal studio or a new set, we'll start off playing Star Child and then we'll go back to the beginning and then rehearse all of the songs, and then when we get to where Star Child would be. We go, well, we don't need to play that because we played it already. (laughs) And then we move on to the next song. Oh, it's great. I love
0: all this color. I, uh, yeah, I just think it's, um, it shows off your vocal range for one, because the, uh, you know, it's not, you're not in falsetto the whole time, just on the, um, and then that, that part where you, uh, where it kind of breaks off into the, you said it was a glockenspiel. I didn't know if it was a marimba or what it was, but. Um, that sort of solo, the star, and then you hold that note and it bursts into this second half of the song is so beautiful. And it's just a, those are these magic touches that I think are just works of genius. Uh, one thing I did want to mention about this is that it apparently cracked, It be, it it came in at number 60 on the club play chart in the States. And that was the only reference to the States that I could find in researching the album. Most everything else is about, you know, chart positions in other countries within europe was was the states not even a thought did you play any shows to promote this album in america no not at all we didn't get
1: to we didn't get to america until we did the standing in the light album with larry and verdine uh, in 83 and we didn't play shows in america until 86 however it was picked up on a on a i can't remember the name of the dj but there's a guy in new york francois the sort of french name anyway in the the 90s he released a sort of a a dj mix of songs, and he included star chart and uh, apparently it was it was being really well received on the dance floor around this time so it's kind of it's it's had its moments where it's been sort of rediscovered if you like by you know the next generation and so uh, you know like i say despite the fact that it didn't it doesn't sort of have any great numbers in terms of its chart success it, it's actually been uh it's been quite a well-loved track for yeah. people who wouldn't normally be level 42 fans um, right okay that makes sense all right well that's it
0: eight tracks on the album and i think we've covered them all when you look back i mean maybe you've already touched on this but when you you know what are some of the dominant memories of this Time period. Well, and and I'm curious if you felt more confident because of this experience when you went in to do Pursuit of Accidents, which is an album I like a lot too. By then, did you think, okay, we're, we've, we're getting the hang of this? Or were you learning how to make an album all over again?
1: Actually, the, we were overconfident because when we went uh, to start recording The Pursuit of Accidents, we thought we knew it all. So mm. we said to the record company, we don't need a producer, we don't need Mike Vernon, we'll produce it ourselves. Mm. And so we, we found uh, a, a, an engineer guy, uh, at the time, engineer, became engineer, producer called Nick Lorney. We went in, we recorded the, the, the basic track of Pursuit of Accidents and I think Eyes Water Falling. Mm. In Battery Studios in London. We wrote something else. We came, we needed to come up with a B side. It was a disaster. Oh. Uh, the ANR guy came down and said, Right, okay, I'm going to stick you in Mike Vernon again, and you need to go back into the drawing board and sort yourselves out. So, yes. So, we sort of wow. had so it's a bit a humble pie there. So, there, there was a process in, on in a pursuit of accidents where we had confidence, but it was somewhat misplaced in, in right. places. However, we were starting to really grow our reputation as a live band and, and really was starting to do uh, more live concerts. And, and particularly, as I say, Love Games and Level 42 was massive in Holland. Yeah. And that was really our first huge success. Uh, and still to this day, you know, when we play Holland, we play multiple shows there in, in quite a small country, wow. um, you know, and uh, of course that success at the time then spread into Germany and to other parts of Europe and then back to the UK. Love Gains of the Level 42 album really was, yeah, you know, really kind of set down a marker. We And I think we, we benefited from that boost that it gave us to know that we were on the right track and that even if we might have a few cul-de-sacs like the beginning of the Pursuit of Accidents recording process, we knew that there was something there that was that was worth doing and we had enough confidence to know that even if we went into the studio which we did really for those first four albums with not all of the material written mm. we'd be able to come up with the goods that that changed when it got to world machine we did a lot more preparation then but by then the technology had moved on and of course the, there's a whole other story sure. there yeah Maybe we'll do
0: another uh, a World Machine deep dive somewhere down the line because that would be a fascinating story too. But I, uh, well, I, I mean, I, you know, I couldn't love you guys more. It's uh, this was a huge honor. And I, and I don't know if you know this, you're by far our most popular, uh, most downloaded episode. of. That's our... amazing. <clears throat> yeah. we we're coming up on five years and your episode is more than double the next uh, highest episode. So, and we have so many listeners who found us thanks to you. Wow. So anyway, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's crazy, but people love Level Forty Two. That's amazing. Well, yeah. Well, thanks for doing this with me, Mike. It's oh, uh, it's always an, a huge honor.
1: Huge. I'll uh, I'll turn my video camera on so I can wave goodbye to you, even though you can't <laughs> wave goodbye to me.
0: <laughs> Thank you, sir. It means a lot. There you have it, Mike Lindup. I love that guy. I love that band and that music so much. It is so formative to me. I love everything they do, but it was really cool to talk about this album in particular. I hope you guys enjoyed that. We have a bunch of other deep dives in the can already coming out and some other bonus episodes. So I hope it's okay, but we're, we're probably going to have two episodes a week, depending on Yan and I's schedule for the next month or so. These are strange times. But we're lucky to have some really interesting, fun, meaningful content to share with all of you, and and we want to. And so I hope you feel it. I hope you're happy with it. We're so grateful for all of you. Join Patreon if you can. The link is right here in the show description, okay? We'll talk to you all next time.